the letter of Second Corinthians. I mean, it's been over a month since we've been in this letter, uh, as we have had many various guest speakers come this past month. So out of a desire to, to kind of jog your memory, I, I just want to provide you with a quick refresher on where we're at so you can better orient yourself within the world that Paul lived in and his passionate heart and response to the things taking place at the church in Corinth. So basically, this was uh, a letter written to the church in Corinth. Uh, he wrote 1 Corinthians, but 2 Corinthians, uh, you sense there's a, there's a bit of tension between Paul, uh, the spiritual leader who once led uh, this fledgling church in Corinth. Uh, and though they're separated apart by distance, he writes this letter from a passionate heart that there would not be no misunderstanding between them relationally because these Corinthian believers had come to think less of Paul over time. Uh, there had been these uh, false teacher or he had these opponents, these so-called uh, super apostles um, who really captured the, the hearts of the believers in Corinth to the point where they started to, to lose trust in, in Paul or his words didn't have much to say. They started to question his motives as to, does this guy really even love us? Does he, they, does he even care for us? And so that's kind of the backdrop in which he is writing this passage here today. And so what do we want to talk about today as we come into 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 15? And really this passage is all about motivation. Motivation. I was watching um, The Mandalorian uh, this past uh, week on, on Disney+, Plus because I kind of got behind. I finished the first two seasons, but uh, I'm pretty late on uh, season three. And I was, I'm always captivated by uh, just The Mandalorian and how uh, you know, the main protagonist sticks with this creed that he follows after. Because the Mandalorian, they have a, a specific way they live by. Sort of this rule of life. This, this creed that they live by as a people group. And I always remember like throughout different, different scenes, you know, like why does he do what he does? Why is he so um, stuck in, maybe you could call it stuck in his way or ingrained in his pattern of living and where he just simply says, this is the way. Well, it's because of that creed that motivates him, right? This kind of motivational factor that drives him to stand for something, even when it's against all odds. And so this morning, what we're talking about are motivations. Because in this passage, through this passionate testimony of what drives Paul's life, of what makes him tick, so to speak, to live the way he does, it's out of a desire to, I, I want to be faithful to God, he's saying. And it really comes down to, to two motivations that we see in his life for why he is the way he is. Two perspectives that fuel his direction in life. Two motivations that drives his devotion to faithfully live for Christ. And first, I want us to look at the fear of the Lord. And second, I want us to look at the love of Christ. So please look with me as we first consider the fear of the Lord in verses 11 through 13. If you look in your Bibles, verse 11 uh, actually continues a, a train of thought Paul had in mind in the previous verses that spoke about the believer's ultimate journey from this life to eternal life in the future, to dwell with Jesus in the new heavens, knowing that knowing his future is secured in Christ grounds him. It gives him clarity about how he might live while he's still on uh, earth. 
in particular, spends his remaining days to, to walk by faith rather than sight, in verse 7, to live a life pleasing before God. Why? Well, one thing he's for sure confident about when it comes to his future is that he's going to have to give an account before Jesus one day. Just as he says in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so this is known as the judgment seat of Christ. And Paul understood that there would be a future judgment, okay, specifically for Christians, for, for believers, not as to whether he or, or other believers in Corinth will receive salvation or not, but for Christians, their salvation, their eternal life is, is certain. Rather, he speaks of a future judgment that has to do with present faithfulness. How believers live in the here and now really does matter. And it's a reflection of your relationship with Jesus. Because one day when you and I come before Jesus, there will be either rewards given or rewards lost, forfeited, depending on our faithfulness to our king. But what does that have to do with today's passage in verse 11? Well, because of the marvelous grace, the extravagant mercy that we have received through Christ Jesus, we don't want to make light of it, right? We don't want to take that for granted by how we live, especially because now and for the rest of our lives, we live for Jesus. We will have to give an account before Jesus one day because Jesus isn't just our Savior, he's our Lord, and that means master, okay? So the opportunities he's presented us with, he's provided us, the time he's given us, the relationships that um, he's, he's put us in, whether it be marriage, friends, family, coworkers, neighbor, community, all of these are areas of our lives that matter to God. All of it. And that's why he begins in verse 11. He confesses that a driving understanding of who Jesus is motivates him. He has a consistent, healthy fear of the Lord, a good and healthy fear of Jesus Christ. And so that means Jesus isn't just some like soft, easy dude that you should regard as some sort of like pushover of a person that, oh, I, I can take advantage of this Jesus guy. He'll, he gives me eternal life. And now the way I, I view my relationship with Jesus is kind of like, when I need him, I want something, I'll come to him. But he's just an accessory aside to my life. Rather than viewing Jesus as, no, no, this one you call Savior, Lord, King, he is the judge of the living and the dead. And just as it was important back in that culture for believers to have a, a proper fear of Jesus, it's just as relevant for us today because we can be too easily caught up with a wrong conception of Jesus. We're too prone to have a, a myopic view of him to the point where our knowledge and conception of him is a, is a Jesus whose character is domesticated just to our fanciful imaginations. We sit here and hear messages, rightly so, about Jesus being kind, being gracious, being loving, being merciful, being compassionate. We read books about Jesus being gentle and lowly in heart, longing for his people to find rest in him, which is all good. These are all truthful things, great things. Because all of those things speak rightly about who Jesus is. But we, not, we, but we must not lose sight of the whole Christ, that Jesus is all these things. Those are his characteristics. 
but he is also one with authority. He is the son of God that his people should treat him and devote themselves as as servants, as citizens of a kingdom who treat and regard their king who rules over them. That Jesus was also the one who, who flipped tables when the temple, which was supposed to be a place of worship, was just, as Jesus put it, turned into a robber's den, a thieves' den, as people were taking advantage of others, where a house of worship became a house of business and self-interest. Here we see the serious side of Jesus when he cleanses the temple. He made a judgment about people's conduct and lives. And so the underlying motivation for Paul's devotion, for this impassioned desire to live faithfully for Christ, was a fear of Jesus. Because we know he is accountable before a holy and righteous judge who has the power and authority to judge. And that led him to take his life and calling seriously. He had a reverential awe of the the magnificent, the glorious, almighty Savior and King that he stood under and lived under. Therefore, he was careful not to live negligently, not to live carelessly. But what should we ask ourselves is what exactly is the fear of Jesus? After all, most of us on some level have some sort of understanding or experience with fear, right? Even if we're not talking about the fear of the Lord, fear can be a, a powerful motivator for our lives. For example, if, if I fear getting a bad grade in school or an exam, like perhaps some of our, our youth, you know, who, are, or who might be struggling as they count down the days for their AP exam, uh, test and final exams, Fear can be that underlying feeling, that that emotional state from within that expresses itself outwardly by driving me or a student to to study harder, right? Study longer or do more practice questions as a response to to the fear of failure or the fear of not getting a good grade. But because I know I'm not just speaking to youth in here like I usually do on Fridays because that's kind of like their world, let me break it down on how fear plays out in adult life as a powerful motivator. On the lighter side of things, if I forget that next Sunday is Mother's Day, okay, and fear potentially being shamed by my family or be called a a very bad son, I'm going to make sure I set notifications on my calendar today. I'm going to order a cake ahead of time or make plans to go back home for a planned dinner next week. But is that the kind of fear that's talked about here? A fear of man. Is that the kind of motivating fear that Paul is talking about here that drives his life in actions? Well, it's probably obvious by now that the examples of fear that I brought up isn't the kind of fear that he's referring to. The fear of Jesus as Lord and judge carries a a sense of, whoa, I am going to meet Jesus one day. His evaluation of how I live my life as a disciple, as a follower, is going to be very important not primarily because I will lose uh, rewards or get, not get rewarded. Those things are true. But probably because I care what Jesus thinks. I care about wanting to please him. I desire to honor him and, and what he has entrusted me. I want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your rest. I have prepared for you a place. Here is your reward and faithfully conducting yourself during your time on earth. You see, it's not, it's not a terrorizing, dread type of fear of Jesus that he might take back his promise of eternal life or revoked 
that forgiveness that he offered you for, your, uh, for the sins that you've committed against God. But it's the kind of reverence that recognizes with a great amount of seriousness that my actions, my unfaithfulness, my laziness, my selfishness, my p- potential to give into temptation uh, and, and sin, my poor stewardship of finances, of time, me losing my cool and getting angry at coworkers, being impatient with my family, all of these situations where my conduct can reflect poorly upon Christ, all of these things matter to God, to Christ. Or I'm not being an example, a salt and light. All of these things and many more might, may either, either please Christ or displease him. Why? Because that future evaluation matters. Not because Jesus is my boss, like some employer-employee relationship, but because he's done so much for me. He is a kind and gracious king that rescued me when I was without hope, when I had nothing. I've inherited every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ my king, so that now for the rest of my life, I'm going to take following Jesus seriously obeying him as my joy and delight, knowing this is for my good and for the glory of Christ. And so I think that is what Paul had in mind as motivating him to persevere in faithfulness, despite often being misunderstood, despite facing false accusations, being wrongly characterized by these false teachers, as well as the believers in Corinth, that Paul finds himself passionately responding to. And that's why he persuades men. You see, the motivation for service, for ministry, for Jesus, is for Jesus' sake. It's an understanding of personal accountability before Jesus as your king. Because he has this fear of Jesus. He's compelled. He can't help but to persuade others. As in Acts 26, 28, when Paul was arrested and on trial for his gospel ministry and appeared before King Agrippa and Festus, as he gives his defense, he speaks out about Christ, sharing the gospel and even tries to get Agrippa to come to understand that Paul isn't making stuff up like a madman, but speaking the truth. At which point Agrippa said in response, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Which Paul quickly answered, whether short or long, I I would to God that not only you, but also all we hear this day might become such as I am. Except for these chains. Someone who wants... Paul himself rejected Christ, a persecutor of the church, but now devoted his life to build up the church, to share the gospel. And so that's just one of many examples by which Paul lived out this fear of the Lord for for himself and what God called him to be as an apostle to evangelize and proclaim Christ. So that is why he serves and that's why he does ministry. It's all about Jesus. And his ultimate motives wasn't just clear to himself in his own conscience, He says without hesitation that he and others who served alongside him in ministry persuaded people about Jesus for the glory of Jesus. And that much is a reality that even Jesus, God himself, sees. So he's not trying to deceive. He's not in it for himself. He knows he's answerable to, he's answering to God and God himself sees his life. And now he wants these believers to see that for them, for themselves, for their own conscience, That his character, his motives are evident. It's laid bare for them to see and it's open before God as well. He's got nothing to hide. He doesn't have a personal agenda when it comes to gospel ministry. And so that's how the fear of the Lord motivates someone 
to faithfulness. Just as Paul, when it comes to evangelism, sharing the gospel, that whether he was in the synagogue or before leaders and people in power, he would persuade. He would reason with them through dialogue, through conversation, so they might come to accept the truth of the gospel and put their trust in Christ. He was motivated to go this far. Why? Because it came to loving people, and you love people by by a desire to win them to Christ. You see, the fear of Jesus motivated him to persuade others to Christ because he knew that Jesus will judge unbelievers one day. Not to give them rewards for how they live, but for them, it's going to be a a terrifying judgment leading to eternal death and separation from God. So the most loving thing that you could do is, is not be silent. And it sort of sounds counterintuitive for some of us, thinking that by sharing and persuading them to trust in Christ, you're manipulating them or being unloving. So we default to our, our comfort, our rationalization that, oh, with time, well, you know, with just being a nice person, you know, they'll, they'll come around. Uh, they'll see that Christianity is about, you know, talking about other mutual interests, but we never get around to talking about Jesus. Instead, we'll talk about basketball. Rather than the fear of Jesus, judging the loss that should motivate us with an urgency to take eternal matters seriously, to take the gospel more seriously. Why? Because lives are, lives are at stake. Lives are at stake. And so we can take small steps in persuading, both personally and directly, or even indirectly, by inviting people we know into spaces where they might hear about the gospel. Be persuaded to follow and trust in Christ. Maybe for some of you, it's inviting them to church. Maybe for others, it's inviting a friend to a Bible study whereby a conversation can take place afterwards. Why? Because this is a form of love. And now that's not the only form of, uh, of love, but it's the ultimate form of, of love of wanting to show them the love of Christ. Uh, yes, we're called to uh, love human beings, uh, not just so that we could shove the gospel down their throat. We should care for those um, who, are, who, who are in need. We should do all these things because They're fellow human beings made in God's image. And we do these things even alongside as we seek to give them the gospel. Maybe for some of us, it's as simple as persuading others in our lives about Jesus is when we share about the gospel, share about Jesus, we ask, so what did you think? You know, we don't just do it with silence afterwards. Were there any uh, objections that you have with what was taught or discussed in today's message? Let's, let's talk about it. Let's dialogue about it. That's how the fear of Jesus motivates believers to persuade others. Because we know that it would break us to possibly hear the words from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Why didn't you share and try to persuade that person about me? Why didn't you try to clarify any misunderstandings they they maybe had about me, about the gospel, that I came to forgive sinners and offer them true life, not condemnation? And so I think the application is pretty clear. Ask Ask yourself this, is the fear of Jesus a motivation for you? And how might the fear of Jesus stir your heart to be faithful to him? in the service of others? How does knowing you're going to have to give an account one day 
for how you lived as a follower of King Jesus, how does it affect you now? In your persuasion, or perhaps lack of persuasion, for people to hear the gospel and trust in Christ for salvation? Are you willing to have a, a potentially awkward conversation, not knowing where it may lead, or maybe even encounter hostility in response? Well, because you fear the Lord and love others so much that you're willing to share the most significant news and truth that they could ever hear in life. Well, continuing not now in verse 12, Paul transitions from the fear of Jesus as a motivator to proclaiming Jesus, and now focuses on demonstrating that fear through his own life, through his character. In other words, does he live this out for himself? He wants the Corinthians to see that he's devoted, he's faithful, not out of impure motives, in order to be liked, in order to please others. He's not putting a performance uh, in life so that he can gain other people's approval, but out of genuine integrity before God and the people of the church to witness. And so this matters because there was an inaccurate impression that the believers had of Paul. They wrongly lost trust in him. Some, you could say, had a vote of no confidence. And so in verse 12, we're introduced to, to something Paul says that may not really be clear to us upon first glance. But what he's essentially saying is, hey, look, I'm not trying to provide a self-recommendation for why you believe and accept my ministry to you like I did previously. Rather, I, I'm sharing what I'm sharing about the fear of the Lord motivating me so that you would have reason to take pride in me. I say it may not be clear because when some of us read this, this, read this it seems as if Paul's puffing himself up, as if he's trying to exalt himself out of pride. But if we follow along in verse 12, we see he's reminding the Corinthians of his motives for ministry so that they would deal with these false teachers and opponents who are actually drawing their attention away from affirming Paul as a legitimate apostle set apart by Christ to serve and build up the church. That is to say, Paul is addressing an issue that Corinthians were experiencing that's just as common today. Paul's desire was that the believers he ministered would take pride in him as their spiritual leader, that they, they would trust him as the one who loved and cared for them, as the one who spent so much time investing in them so that they might grow in their walk with Christ instead of being treating him or like backstabbing him. But now perhaps they felt ashamed to have him as their leader. You see, that's why Paul's desire for the believers is to respond to his opponents, to defend his honor and integrity as an apostle, one chosen and set apart for God. You see, what's at stake isn't a personality contest. As one biblical commentator put it, it's a struggle for the lives of those who appear to be Christian on the outside, but whose hearts are far away from the Lord. You see, these opponents of Paul spoke ill of his ministry or looked down on him. They did so while taking pride in themselves, uh, their rhetoric abilities, their oratory abilities, their letters of recommendation, the honors that they got from other people, other men, their popularity. But what really matters isn't outward appearances, but the state of one's heart. And that very much is true. And it's nothing new for God even told Samuel in the Old Testament when it came to selecting a king for Israel, God doesn't look at outward appearances. He could see inside a person and know that person's character because he looks at the heart. And this is the principle that Christians have to come to grips with just as we do so today. 
Because it's so, it can be so prevalent in our human condition to, to focus perhaps merely on outward externals, right? But neglect the heart, the inward character. We gravitate to what's popular, willing to lend our ears, to give more credibility or weight to people who seem to have more followers, more influence, more outward abilities or skill. But in doing so, we adopt and behold worldly values. We begin to think and live as if only outward matters and is trustworthy. But as Christians, we're reminded that the superficial counts for nada. The character of one's heart counts for everything. And the heart that's being spoken of here is the core of your inner being. It drives and controls your intellect, your emotions, your will. And so these opponents of Paul were all show but no heart. They were phonies in the eyes of God. Why? Because they had no integrity. Their heart deficiency correlated with a character deficiency through their actions. Their speaking for God was to impress men rather than a heart to know and glorify God. Yet the Corinthians were blinded and was attracted to this kind of leadership. Having a leader, a man of character, didn't matter to them, whose heart was motivated by fear of Jesus. And so that's where we're at. That's what truly matters. Yet it wasn't valued. It wasn't affirmed or encouraged by the church. Those values didn't matter to them. And so Paul went on through that discouraging experience Yet in verse 13, he continues, for if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. He's basically saying, yes, if I'm acting like a, a maniac, a religious madman that, that is besides what you would expect of me, then I'm, I'm crazy for Christ. It's for God. The world can see me as that crazy dude speaking loudly in the streets about Jesus. My opponents might label me as being way too intense, you know, rather than balanced, too radical for Jesus' sake, too extreme when it comes to making Christ known, right? But make no mistake, whether or not this is the perception of him, even if he's seen this way, he says, hey, it's for God. Yet on the other hand, if you view Paul as having the right frame of mind, if you think of uh, him as being calm, collected, patient, restrained in how he relates to you, it's because he's doing so for your sake. It's not out of self-interest. So it's like he's saying, I don't have an agenda in order to take advantage of you because I, I, okay, I, I, I may not be as ecstatic as those other teachers you seem to, to respect and look up to, but hey, my ministry has all the marks of authenticity, of being real because my goal is persuading others of the gospel is pointing to Christ, not me. Yet again, what we see from Paul that is an example for us is how the fear of Jesus motivates someone. It drives convictions. It settles consci uh, their, their conscience. It fuels their heart to embrace the scorn of others, to be thought of it as crazy, no matter how reasonable and rational you might be in your mind as you seek to persuade people of the truth of God, of the gospel. And so as we try to seek and serve the church, as we, as we seek to build others up, as we live for Jesus radically because of a, a reverent awe and honor of him as our master, yes, there is, there is a risk. You and me will be viewed as being a religious nutcase 
But at the end of the day, that judgment doesn't matter. The judgment of people don't matter. It's God's judgment that does. And so we aim to please him. We don't live as people pleasers. So we've looked at the first motivation for living faithfully. The second one is a love of Christ in verses 14 to 15. To kind of appreciate these words and have it grip our hearts, we must first understand what he's saying. The motivating factor that directs him, that guides his direction in life, that fundamentally operates as a a rule of life for Paul is the love of Christ. But he's not talking about his love for Jesus. Rather, he, he primarily has in mind Christ's love for him, Christ's love for us. You see, there's a specific order, a, a, a logic within the gospel of how God loved us and demonstrated his love for us in the best possible way. How? By sending his son as atoning sacrifice for our sin, 1 John 4.10. He's come to the conclusion that because Jesus, being the promised one who would save and rescue sinners from their sin and judgment from a holy God, died on the cross, Paul can now identify himself as one who saved from death and now live for the one who saved him. Now there's sort of an elephant in the room when it comes to what Paul says here. For some of us, when we read verses 14 to 15, we may think that Paul is saying that, that this sacrifice of Jesus' life on the cross is applied to every single human being who ever lived, meaning everyone is saved, everyone is made right with God. But that wouldn't make sense and would contradict the next statement therefore all have died. Because if Jesus died for everyone who ever lived and atoned for their sins, of the, even the people who reject him all the way to the grave, how would we make sense of the statement, therefore all have died? If he was trying to teach universal salvation, that wouldn't jive with the statement that all have died because the result of salvation through the sacrifice of Christ's life is eternal life. And so a universal salvation couldn't resolve in a universal debt. So that's not how that, that, that's being used here. Not only that, in verse 15, there's a specific group of people Paul has in mind. For the one Christ has died for, he recognizes this group as those who live might no longer live for themselves. So what's he saying? That the love of Christ was shown by dying in the place of all who would put their faith in him. And when that takes place, All who trust in Christ have died, not speaking of eternal death, but they have died in the sense of dying to themselves, dying to living for themselves. Why? Because they have seen, uh, they have been saved and are now unified with Christ, which means their identity is with Christ. They have understood and experienced the powerful love of Christ by trusting in what he has done for sinners out of this deep, his deep love for us. And so armed with that knowledge, with embracing this truth for their lives, their, their perspective, their rule of life changes. It's no longer, oh, I live for self-improvement or some conception of trying to become the best version of yourself. No, rather it's, I live to be like Christ. After all, Jesus moved by his love, considered the needs of others and sacrificed for others. Willing to lay down his life to reconcile people to God was more important than his own personal glory, ambition. He had no pride in it. He humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. 
And so there was no greater demonstration than this laying down of his life for another. For those who have trusted in him, they can have the confidence of forgiveness. They can have the certainty of eternal life. And certainly their motive for living is no longer to live for themselves, their own dreams and ambitions, but to live for Christ, which includes following in his footsteps by sacrificially living for the good of others. And so Paul understood that to love like Christ, we must consider the well, spiritual well-being, the, the growth of others, just as he did in conducting himself in his ministry to the Corinthians, even if it means dying to our own selfish hearts, dying to our improperly ordered loves that may have ruled or governed us in the past, but no longer should rule over us now. For some of us, that means dying to our love of comfort, dying to our love of fame and fortune, dying to self-promotion. We have been saved purposefully so that we might grow in Christ-likeness. Why? Because the love of Christ for us now controls and directs our way. The power of sin has been broken in your life. The Spirit has enabled you to live for him because we're now dead to sin and alive to Christ. So church, how does the love of Christ for you through his sacrifice control you? How does Christ's love encourage and motivate you to, to greater faithfulness to him? What are the areas of your life where you are living as if something else is controlling you? May you be motivated to look to Christ once more. Marvel at his love demonstrated on the cross. As you reflect on the love of Christ, may you also now live for Christ by following his example. Because this is the way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Those who have been redeemed by the love of Christ on the cross and who will, they will continue and ought to continue to live gospel-transformed lives until we see Jesus face to face. And that means fearing Jesus, being ruled by the reality that Christ sacrificially loved you, and now you are called to sacrificially live for him, persuading people with the gospel, pursuing personal holiness so that we might all walk with integrity in our lives before God and others and also so that we might serve and build up others to mature in the image of our Savior and Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, many of us have various motivations that drive our weeks, drive our agendas, drive our lives, at many time, it's not aligned with the motivations you've called us to embody in the rhythms, rhythms of our life. The fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. I pray that that would not be so, that we would continue to, to grow in knowing you so that it might impact the way we live, Lord. Even if it means 
challenging, competing motivations that draw us away from you, that draw us away from being steadfast and faithful in pursuing you, just as you first pursued us. Lord, help us. We fail in this regard, including me, each day, each week. We want to live for ourselves. Where selfishness arises. Where we don't love you and others. Where we don't seize opportunities to persuade those who are lost about Jesus. But at the same time, love and care for them. And that that would not be so. As a church body, we would be marked by the love of the Savior, which does sometimes calls upon us to sacrifice for a higher good, for a greater calling, even when it interferes with our agenda. Because we know that we want to please you, Lord. We want to hear your words of affirmation that we have been faithful with the time you have given us here on this temporal urge. Help us not to look upon you lightly, but to see Jesus as not just our savior, our security blanket for the, for the future life, but our, our king here and now the one we aim to please and to make much of. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.